All right, if you got your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in verses 18 through 21 this morning. Okay, so we've been talking about, kind of starting from Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, the idea of seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And so we've talked about kind of how that impacts individual life. We talked about the, the character that, that shows that we have, uh, the fighting against sin, trusting God. Um, so we talked about how, what all of this looks like in our lives. Well, today and next week, we're going to look and see how this impacts some of our relationships. And so the focus on this morning is how Christians, or how being a Christian who's striving to follow God, how that impacts our role in the family. Now, before we look at the passage, I want us to kind of set... Uh, two truths, or look at two truths, two biblical truths, so we can kind of move forward from there. Because I think they're going to kind of help us influence the rest of the passage. The first is this. God has created all people equal. God has created all people equal. There is not one gender, no one ethnicity that is greater or more important or more powerful or more authoritative or smarter or anything else than another. God has created us to be equal. Now, it's important for us to understand the historical context of what is going on as Paul writes this passage that we're about to look at. Because in this time, there was not equality. In this culture, people were not considered to be equal. In fact, men were considered to be uh, vastly more superior than anybody else. Men could divorce their wives for any reason. Uh, even if they were served bad food, that was reason enough to divorce. Uh, there was a rule called patria potestas, which means power of a father. And the father had virtual life and death power, not only over his slaves, but also his wife and children. He could kick them out of the house. He could sell them as slaves. He could kill them. And there would be zero accountability because he was the father he was the husband, and he had the right to do so. When a child was born, they would be laid at the feet of the father. And if the father picked them up, then they were to be brought into the family. But if the father walked away, then that child would either be killed, or if it was a healthy child, it would be raised to be sold as a slave or as a prostitute. Fathers during this time had absolute authority within their households to do literally whatever they wanted. And so as Paul writes this letter, as he writes this section, he's writing this in contrast to go against the, the, the terrible direction that the culture that they were living in had embraced and gone in. So I know that our, our culture now is far from perfect. I know that there is not absolute equality everywhere. But whatever, wherever we're at, whatever kind of um, negativities people think that we have, we are light years farther away from where uh, they were when this letter was written. So not only are all people created equal, but also in the church, especially in the church, all people are equal. Galatians 3.28 says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that's not to say that 
there aren't different roles, there aren't different responsibilities, but when it comes to equality, there is none greater than another. Colossians 3.11, which we just looked at a few weeks ago. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So for the Christian, we are all created equal. There is none greater, more superior than another. And especially within the church, especially as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we are equal. Secondly, so God created all things equal, all people equal. Secondly, God is a God of order. This means that God has things organized and established in a certain way. Now, we see this in the Godhead. The Bible teaches that God, the Bible teaches the Trinity, that there is one God and three distinct persons, all equal in power, equal in authority, equally God, yet one, we serve one God. But within that trinity, each of the persons subject themselves or submit themselves in a, a willingly in a, in, a, in a way to create order. Let me kind of show you. In 1 John 4.10, we see that the Father sends the Son. So the Son has subjected Himself to the Father. 1 John 1.10 says, And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but He has loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God the Father sent the Son. The Son never sends the Father. And likewise, we see that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Son and the Father to point us back to Jesus. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Then in John 15, 26. But when the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. So the Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit's purpose or the Spirit's work, the Spirit's goal is to point us back to the Son. And then we also see the Son's goal. Jesus' goal is to glorify to the Father. In Hebrews 10, 7, it says, Then I said, Behold, I will come and do your will, O God. This is Jesus speaking. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written me of the scroll of the book. And then in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So even in the Trinity, where God is perfectly equal and perfectly uh, no greater than the other person, there is willful submission within the Trinity. Because God is a God of order. God has ordered things a certain way. And what we'll see today is God has even given that order within the family. So let's look at Colossians 3, 18-21. We'll pray and then we'll just make our way back through the passage. It says this, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. Thank you for this time that you have given us. We thank you for your word. 
Father God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, God, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would speak to our, uh, our minds, our souls, Father God, that you would encourage us, uh, challenge us, um, convict us if need be. Father God, I pray that you would use um, your word and the Holy Spirit, God, to speak deeply uh, to who we are. Father God, far greater, far more powerful, far more impactful, God, than my voice ever could. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Okay, so the first message that we have. uh, Well, there's, yeah, we said there's four messages. So the first message that we have is the message to wives. So the first thing that we see in verse 18, submission is a choice. So verse 18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This word submit in the Greek carries the idea with it that this is a choice that one makes to submit. The word here is not obey. This is not a word that says the, father, the, the, the husband is, is king and the wife is subservient and she is to obey everything the husband says. This word is a word that says this is a willful choice for an equal to submit to or to place themselves under the responsibility or the leadership of someone else. That the, hus- the wife is not a doormat or something less. Now this pictures the very submission that we saw within the Trinity. This does not give the, the husband um, more authority. This does not give the husband the ability to make all decisions unilateral and to consider the wife just like a child, just a separate person, that he is kind of the only adult in the house. None of that is what this verse means. What this verse picks up or what this verse shows is that God has established an order just like He has within the Godhead. He has established an order within the family. And it goes, and we'll look at this in a second, but it goes fathers or husbands, wives, and children. And so the wives and the husbands are equal. Remember, God has created all people equal. Even within the church, we are all equal. There's none greater or more important than the other. But within that equality, God has created different roles. God has created different responsibilities. And so God has established that the man is the one who bears the responsibility for the family of leadership and the wife to honor God, to love her spouse, is to submit to that leadership. In fact, it can be said like this, that the role of a husband is a position of responsibility, not authority. And here's what I mean by that. The responsibility of the family when it comes to leadership, when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to just the direction the family goes, that responsibility falls on the head, falls on the shoulders of the husband. For me, the easiest way to picture this is thinking about Adam and Eve. Now, Whenever we talk about Adam and Eve in the garden, we always make the jokes about, well, it was Eve that chose the fruit. It was Eve that kind of uh, made the bad decision. Uh, There's a a little meme on Facebook that says, the reason why women don't choose where to go uh, out to eat or what restaurant to go to is because last time they chose, they messed up everybody's life. They introduced sin into the world. Um, But in reality, in reality, listen to this. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and verse 14, it says this. Therefore... 
Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In the book of Romans, the responsibility for sin entering into the world, the responsibility for uh, mankind becoming a fallen uh, creation where the fall happened, it is not placed on Eve. It is placed on Adam because Adam, in God's order, bore the responsibility of the family. Adam bore the responsibility as the head of the family uh, to take the responsibility for leading his wife well. And so Adam, in his failure... uh, allowed his wife to to make a sinful decision, and then Adam followed suit. And because of that, the responsibility of leadership did not fall on Eve's head. It fell on Adam's. The role of husband is not one of authority or a king or a boss or a master. It's a role of responsibility. That the obligation, the, the burden, if you will, of leadership and responsibility falls on the head of of Adam. And so God's position or how God has ordered things is that God has called the wife to submit to the leadership of her husband, meaning the husband has the responsibility, the burden of that falls on him. And so God's desire that the wife would come along loving and encouraging and even challenging at times her husband to do what is right, to be what is right, to lead well, so the family works well together. Let me try to explain kind of how uh, this works in, in our family. When it comes to kind of big decisions, or when it comes to uh, kind of the direction our family is going, Jessica and I, we talk about things, we discuss things, we pray about things. I ask for her insight. Uh, I need her insight. Uh, and there are some ways that she is smarter than I am and she has more uh, insight and discernment than I do. So we talk about things, we pray about things. Uh, and she'll tell you though, but ultimately, if a decision has to be made, that that ultimately it's my decision. So like when we were talking about and come and praying about coming to uh, Corning, to, to Calvary Baptist, uh, we prayed about it. Uh, I met with some of the leaders. We came to the church and kind of checked things out. Um, and the whole time we talked about it, we discussed it, we prayed about it. And she came to a point where she said, look, I'm fine going, but whatever decision you make, I'll stand behind you. If you decide, you know what, this isn't what we need to do, then I'm going to stand behind you. If you say this is a decision that you think we need to make, then I'm going to stand behind you. and We'll move and we'll go up to, to Corning. And so it's not a decision that I made on my own. I did not say, uh, hey woman, pack your clothes, pack the kids, we're moving to Arkansas. We talked, we discussed, we prayed, we came together as a couple, we came together as one flesh, as the Bible describes a married couple. We came together as one person to get on the same page and ultimately what it came down to, she said, I understand that the responsibility of this 
falls on you. So if you take us this direction, if it's a great decision and everything works out, then great, I'm going to stand behind you. If you take us in this direction and it was the wrong decision and it works out horribly, then I'm still going to stand behind you. So that responsibility fell on my head and she came along to, her submission was to say, whatever direction you believe our family should go, that's the direction we will go and I'm going to stand by you and encourage you in that. Now, there have been times when I've wanted to go one direction or make one decision, and in her wisdom, she has pointed out some flaws and faults to that, so I haven't done that. I need her insight. I need her wisdom. We are not two individuals. We have come together as one flesh, as one body, as, as one couple, as one unit, and so I need her impact. I need her influence. I need her uh, to, to help me pray about things and think through things and discuss things together to make decisions together for our family. But I also understand that she is called to submit because God has ordered things where ultimately that responsibility of leadership falls on my shoulders and falls on my head. But if I'm going to lead well and make good decisions, I desperately need her. So that's kind of the direction that, that that verse is going. That submission is not absolute authority. Submission is not kingship. Submission is willfully submitting to the role that God has created the husband to hold within the family. But then we also see in verse 18 that submission is driven by worship. So verse 18, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Most of the time, that's where people stop. But if you continue on, it says... As is fitting in the Lord. What this means is, is this is what God has ordained. This is what God has chosen. And so really the ultimate drive here for submission is not because your husband always makes the best decisions or because your husband is super smart or because this, that, or the other. The ultimate reason for submission is because this is the proper way God has ordained it. And because you love God, because you love Jesus, because Jesus has saved you and you want to live your life honoring Him, loving Him, praising Him, and worshiping Him, you submit to your husband because this is what God has called you to do. Submission is driven by, it flows out of worship. Not because the husband demands it, not because the husband even necessarily deserves it, but because this is how God has ordained things to work. Because you love God, your love for God, your desire to honor God, your desire for worship God is what drives this idea of submission. Not because of what culture says, not because of what our friends say, not because of what your husband says. None of those are the ones who dictate how the family is to be run. It is God who has said, this is the order of the family. This is how I've created things to be run. This is how I've created things to operate. So this is how I want things to move. And because you are a Christian and you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, because you love Him and you want to follow Him, you Submit, not because of a multitude of other reasons, but because this is what God has called you to do. All right, secondly, we have the message to the husbands in verse 19. Verse 19 says this, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So our first point is very simply, love your wife. If you are a husband, love your wife. 
The word love here in the Greek is the word agape. This is the same word that we have when uh, the Bible talks about God loving us. This is a love without limitations. This is a love without restrictions. This is a love that regardless of how someone responds to you, you are to love them. You are to seek their benefit. You are to seek what is best for them. Husbands, we are to love our wives even when they're cranky, even when they're in the bad moods. We're to love our wives, even all the time, not only when they're having a bad day, not only when we want something from them. We are to love our wives 24-7. That means we seek what's best for them. We care for them. We are compassionate for them. We are compassionate towards them. We want what is best for them. We want them to succeed. We want them to feel loved and to feel cared for. In fact, in Ephesians 5.25, it tells us this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. The model for husbands when it comes to loving your wife is Jesus Christ. And not just Jesus Christ as being a good guy. Jesus Christ as dying on the cross because He loved the church. He sacrificed His entire life to draw the church to Himself. The call here for husbands is husbands sacrifice because you love your wife. As Jesus Christ sacrificed and laid down His life for the sake of the church, Husbands, sacrifice your life. Not just physically, hey, I'd be willing to die, but literally, day in and day out, make your wife more important to you than you view yourself. Give your wife more value than you give yourself. Seek her worth, her beauty, her love. Seek to to, to make her feel loved and worthy and make her feel just glorified in your love more than you do yourself. Exalt your wife, love your wife, sacrifice for your wife. That is the picture that husbands have been given. And then he follows it up with this. Husbands, don't be a jerk. Y'all weren't expecting that one. But it says, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Basically, do not be harsh with them means don't be a jerk. When, you, when things don't go your way, don't be mean. Don't be rude. Don't be short-tempered towards your wife. Treat them with love. Treat them with grace. Treat them with compassion. Don't... Remember, he's talking to this culture where husbands have absolute authority to do whatever they want to do. And so he's kind of introducing this kind of counterculturally, where he's telling this culture, look, husbands, you can kind of, according to the law, do whatever you want to do to your wife, treat her however you want to treat her. I'm telling you to love her. I'm telling you to to act differently than everyone around you when it comes to your spouse. And so when your wife maybe acts differently, or maybe when she doesn't cook the food that you want, or maybe when she doesn't do the things that you want exactly how you want her in the time frame that you want, your response is not to be mean. Your response is not to be harsh. Your response is not to cause friction. Your response is not to to act bitter or to act in a way that would cause bitterness. But your response is to be gracious. Your response is to be forgiving. Your response is to be loving. In fact, look back up in verses 12 and 13 of Colossians chapter 3 where we talked about him, uh, Paul calling the church to put on these different characteristics and uh, um, uh, 
different aspects of who they are. A husband should model this and show this to his wife. You want to know how to love your wife? Do this. Be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patience, bearing with one another if they have a complaint, forgiving each other as God has forgiven you. And above all these, put on love which hold things in harmony. If you want to know how to love your wife, if you want to know how to not be a jerk, follow those those characteristics. Let that dominate. Let that rule in your life. Compassion, humility, kindness, meekness, forgiveness, patience with one another. That's what we are called to. So, the call here is that husbands have been given the, uh, the responsibility of leadership and wives are called to submit to their husbands. But at the same time, husbands are called to exalt their wives even above themselves because love is seeking someone else's value, seeking their best even above yourselves. So there's this kind of give and take here where the wife submits, but the husband loves the wife so much that they sacrifice their own life to show the wife how much they love and value and care for them. And this is the the cycle that God has created for the the, the roles of husband and wives to work together. It's not that husbands have ultimate authority and kind of command everybody else to do what they want. It's that husbands are called to love and exalt their wives, uh, to to seek what is best for them, to seek their best above their own life, uh, to sacrifice for their wife, while at the same time, wives are submitting to that loving, caring, giving husband, trusting their leadership as they move together as a family. And so then we move to the message, of, message to children. Verse 20, it says this. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. The first point is simply this. Obey your parents. Now, when it came to the wives, we saw the word was submit. And that submission is a, uh, a willful decision to um, submit to the leadership of others. Obedience, and it, and it does not show authority. Obedience shows authority. Obey says within the household, uh, parents have authority. Parents get to make the rules. Parents get to say, this is how we live. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. And the responsibility that falls on children is to obey their parents, to do what God has called you to do, to be the child that God has called you to be, you are to obey your parents. This is not a new commandment. In Exodus 20.12, one of the Ten Commandments says this, honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother means to respect. It means to obey. That your days may be long in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. Very simply, the call to children is to obey your parents. But just as we saw with the idea of submission, obedience is driven by worship. He follows that up. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Once again, the reason why as children, that children obey or that we obeyed while we were children or while we should have obeyed while we were children is because we love Jesus. The reason why is because God has called us to love Him. And if we are going to love God, then we obey our parents, children, youth, 
elementary school children, high school students, God has called you to obey. God has called you to follow the leadership of your parents. You might not respect your parents. You might not like your parents at times. That is fine. God has called us to obey. God has called us to follow. God has called us as children to do what our parents have called us to do. Now, once you reach a certain age, once you're no longer in the, in, the, in the household, a lot of that changes. But while you are a child, God has said, if you're going to love me and honor me and worship me and follow me and trust me, then I'm putting you under the umbrella of authority of your parents. And so for parents, there's also a reminder that yes, there's authority that comes with this. Children are to obey us. But there is also that responsibility. Just like Paris, the, the husband leads, there's that responsibility that sits on his uh, shoulders, his head, as he leads the family. Parents to children, there's a responsibility that sits on mothers and fathers, or if it's grandparents and grandparents, whoever it is who is parenting and raising the child, there's responsibility that sits on the shoulders of both parents to lead and to lead well, to lead them to love Jesus, to lead them to, uh, to obey, to lead them and to love them in the same way husbands love their wives. Fathers and mothers are to love their children. And really that moves us to the last point, this last message to parents. And in verse 21, it is simply this, parent well. Be a good parent. Verse 21 says this, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now remember, there's a direction to, par- to fathers here because of the culture, uh, because of the responsibility to counteract this, this negative culture that says parents can treat their, or fathers can treat their children however they want to. And it's a reminder for both parents that there is to be love from parent to child, that you are not to, um, how did he word it exactly? You are not to provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, that does does not mean that you cannot do things that your kids are going to get angry at. If I discipline one of the, the kids, the other day, uh, I'll tell this because she's sick at home, so she won't know that I said this, but Abigail lied to me about something. And so that's a big no-no in our house. You do not lie. And so because she lied, she got grounded from some toys. She got grounded from um, TV for two days, and then she got a spanking. And so... Was she happy about that? No. Did she cry? Yes. She was upset. She was, she was mad that she got in trouble. She was upset that she got in trouble, but she got in trouble for doing something wrong. And so this does not mean don't discipline your children, but it means as parents, there are some times where we do things that are maybe not the best, maybe not the wisest, and it can have a negative impact on our children. Let me give you a, 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 a kind of a brief list of what this might look like. And this is not a list I came up with. Uh, this is a list that came from John MacArthur, but I think that there's wisdom in it. So it's ways that parents can provoke their children and discourage them. One is overprotection, that, that smothering your child, that children do need guidance, uh, but children also need to be children. So when we overprotect our children, that can, can kind of uh, clamp down on them and make them feel uh, not necessarily loved or cared for. Favorit- favoritism. 
comparing children or, or talking up one child at the, at the expense of another and making one child look smarter or greater or more important than the other or giving one child more and just kind of letting the other child kind of get the, get the leftovers. Favoritism is a way that we can provoke children and discourage them. Uh, next is discouragement. Not encouraging, not complimenting, not, not being there to say, hey, you did a great job, or, or hey, maybe you messed up this time, but we can work and we can get better next time. Encourage your child. Compliment your children, your grandchildren. Failing to sacrifice for children and making them feel unwanted. When I grew up, we didn't have much. We were kind of uh, lower middle class, I guess you could say. We never went hungry, but uh, we didn't have a whole lot of stuff. We only had one car uh, for our family, and there was six of us. Uh, and so on the weekends, my mom and dad never went and did anything. They would always allow me and my sister to have the car. She would have it one night, I would have it the next night. And so they sacrificed to say, look, we love y'all. We know that y'all want to go spend time with your friends. So we're going to give you that freedom to do so, even if it means we kind of get stuck at home uh, for the whole weekend. But they sacrificed for us, and that let us know, or was one of the ways they let us know that they loved us. Failing to allow children to grow up at a normal pace. Sometimes it's easy to want kids to, to not be kids because kids are loud, kids make big movements, kids jump around. Um, we went to the store the other day and I was holding Lillian's hand and the whole time we're walking in the store, she's jumping up and down as big as she can just as we're walking through the store. And that's not quiet and it, and it draws attention. And so there's a temptation there at times to say, look, chill out, act like you're a 39-year-old adult and don't act like you're a two-year-old little girl. But let kids be kids. There's sometimes we'll be walking to the store and um, Frozen 2 is really big at our house right now and there's one or two songs that, that Amelia likes to just blast at the house. She gets to blast it. She gets to sing as loud as she wants at, at times. It depends on who's asleep in the house. But when we go to the store, yeah, we still let her sing, but maybe not quite as loud, but we still let her be a kid. You can let kids be kids. Using love as a tool of reward or punishment. Only showing love if your kids do good. And taking away love when they do bad. Sadly, this is how some parents parent. Maybe it's because that's how they were parented. But that is a way to provoke children. And then finally, the, the most obvious would be physical and verbal or emotional abuse. Um, would be a way to provoke children. And so kind of in the context of this passage, in the historical context in which Paul is writing, he's saying, fathers, look, your culture says you get to do whatever you want to your child. But I'm telling you a better way. And that way as mothers and fathers, that way is not to treat them like they're second class citizens, not to treat them like they have no value, but to love them, to care for them. In the same way that he's calling uh, husbands to love their wife, he says, love your children, care for your children. Children obey your parents, but also parents, don't provoke your children. Love your children. Care for them. Be concerned about them. Want what is best for them. God has created an order for the family. And the basis of that order is God Himself. 
God has created the same or a similar order within the Godhead, but also the motivation for all of this, the motivation for husbands to love, the motivations for wives to submit, the motivation for children to obey, and the motivation really for husbands to not be jerks, but to show compassion and gentleness and grace. It's all about Jesus. It's setting our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's understanding that when Jesus saved me, He has changed me. He has changed the direction of of my life. He has changed who I am, and He has changed how I am to interact and love with my family. And so if we are Christians, the reason why we act the way that God has called us to act is because He has loved us, and we trust that His way is ultimately better than what my way would be or what our culture's way might be. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now and thank you for this time that you've given us, this opportunity, God, to, uh, to study your word, God, to see how you have ordered the family. Father God, we trust that you are good and we trust that your ways are better than our ways, that they are better than our culture's ways. And so Father God we, um, God, we confess that we're not perfect. And God, there are times when we don't live up to what you have called us to. But Father God, we want to... We want to be husbands that love. We want to be wives that, 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 that love you and therefore submit. God, we want to be children who love you and obey. We want to be husbands who are compassionate and generous and kind and humble and patient and gentle and meek and forgiving. And Father God, not people who are rude or selfish or abrasive. Father God, in our families, we want to model you and who you are. Father God, help us to hold you up and exalt you high. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.